This is Susan Winery of Clearwater Historical Society presenting History Speaks. Today our guest is Marvin Seipel of Seipel's Garden Seed Inn. Good morning, Marvin. Welcome to Clearwater Historical Society. And I understand that you were the son of the grandson, great-grandson of one of the founders of Seipel's Garden Seed Inn. That's correct. And it was a generational restaurant run by Mary Boardman, then her daughter, and then your father Richard, and you. That's correct. Tell me about the beginnings. And how, where, where was she from? Well, she was from New England. And my, let me make sure I get this straight, kind of long story here. My great-grandmother, uh, Mary Boardman, uh, was married to a gentleman named Sam Boardman. They had a daughter, Eleanor Boardman, who married my grandfather, Frank Seipel. Frank and Eleanor fathered two boys, my uncle, Fraser Seipel, and my dad, Richard Seipel. So to come all the way back, uh, Eleanor, uh, excuse me, Mary and Sam operated a uh, seasonal lodge in upstate New York on Twitchell Lake. And as did so many people wanting to escape the weather, came to Florida, found a piece of property, opened a seasonal, what would now probably be referred to as a bed and breakfast at the site that ultimately became the Garden Seat Restaurant. She had quite a bit of acreage, didn't she? Yes. She started out with significantly more than just the restaurant sat on. Her property, initial property acquisition was approximately the middle of Jeffords Street on the north to the Bel Air Clearwater line on the south, which is the southern restaurant property line. was bordered on the west by basically the Intercoastal Waterway, because that's back when they deeded riparian mm-hmm. rights to the bottomland, and went east to about Bay Avenue. That encompasses all of Morton Plant Hospital. Yes, it does. Majority of it. And in fact, the reason the hospital is where it is, um, just to get off on a little hospital history, when railroad tycoon Henry Plant was building a railroad through this area, his son Morton was very became very ill. There was not a hospital facility in the area. He challenged the community to match dollar for dollar, he would match dollar for dollar what the community raised to build a hospital. Uh, They raised sufficient funds, needing a location. My great-grandmother sold them the chunk of land where the original hospital was built, which at the time was known as the West Coast Hospital. It was the only hospital in the area. Later became Morton Plant, which is now part of the BayCare system. And the irony that now all of the land that she had the last parcel being what the restaurant sat on, is now back occupied and owned by Morton Plant slash Baycare Healthcare System. So tell me more about the location of the property. I think she bought it from a woman named Boyd. I believe, yes, the, the home was originally owned by, uh, uh, it was known as the Boyd Homestead. Back then, just tracks were known as the was the Roebling Estate, the Brown Estate, the Boyd Homestead, mm-hmm. the right down the line. Um, the acquisition, which included the main house, which was sat on the bluff, which until the day the building was demolished, 
uh, actually still stood in most of its originality. It had been added onto significantly through multiple renovations and additions. But the original house was still the core of the property and the entrance was still the same entrance the very last day it was open since the very first day it ever opened. Same, same front door, same threshold. It was beautiful land. How did they come to plant a garden there? I heard a story about your, your dad. It might be true. <laughs> a lot of things might be true about him chopping down some trees and yes. getting in trouble. And well, no. That, I thought the irony of it was that he actually created the gardens there. Well, no. Back, back then, uh, it, whatever. You want to cut down a mangrove? Get your saw and have at it. Yeah. Um, which essentially is what they did because there was pretty much no view. The mangroves were massive because, of course, it had been un, uh, untended and uncleared for many, many years. Um, wanting a view because it was a, a boarding house and restaurant, um, just chopped down all the mangroves. And that came at a later time because my dad was, he, he best he could figure, early to mid-teens when he was first associated with any kind of length on the property. And he remembers... Donald Roebling driving his alligator, which he had just perfected, invented, and tested, pretty much that uh, com com completed the um, sea trials that day, came across the bay in the alligator, drove up the bluff in front of the property, through the mangroves, destroying them, of course, but, you know, back then it's like... Don't worry about it. And gave my great-grandmother a ride. She was very close with Donald Roebling. He was an interesting character, too. And yes. I understand he drove the, he tested the alligator in his swimming pool. In the swimming and pool. And drove it out. Drove it. Swim, yep, pool. this was a story. He drove it, on, on, drove it in one side. It floated. Drove it out the other side. Drove <laughs> it over the seawall. And came down and gave her a ride. It's an incredible story. Do you know much about the amphibian, amphibious and what he, I know he turned over the patent to the U.S. government. Well, he was, he was very much against conflict and the war, and he wanted no part of it. The equipment was originally designed to help save lives, primarily in South Florida and the Everglades for hurricanes. hurricanes, yes. But the Marine Corps, in seeing the capabilities of an amphibious vehicle like that, um, he ended up working with them because, again, it saved lives. And, in fact, the three of the things or the three things that were credited with saving thousands of lives and shortening the Second World War were the amphibious vehicle, a.k.a. the Roebling Alligator, radar, and the Jeep. I think what kind of stimulated his interest in developing something like that was the 1927 hurricane. Yes. Where so many people died in the lower part of Florida. Correct. Let's go back to the restaurant. Tell me about the menu at the restaurant. Well, it started out as just a very simple, it was a like a tea house, a tea room. They had teas, tea among the yes, azaleas. Be, is yes, and, and of course this was pre-air conditioning, mm -hmm. and all those old homes had 12, 14-foot ceilings, um, shaded lots and or 
porches, surrounding porches, ceiling fans. It was a, diff a different era, of course, with uh, climate and, and how it was handled pre-AC. And it was a, a very relaxing winter retreat for people from the north. Keep in mind the Bellevue Biltmore was open and fully functioning as a seasonal facility. People having come down in their own rail cars, um, it had always been a very wealthy winter retreat. Um, I, I don't recall where predominantly visitors came from. Um, like for instance, Miami Beach back in the day, there was often uh, upstate and New York City folks kind of gravitated to that area. I don't know who primarily came to this area, but they were seasonal and they came year after year after year. Um, and with the closing of the Bellevue Biltmore, uh, that pretty much, uh, pretty much dictated the opening and closing dates of the restaurant as well, because essentially your, your clientele went away after Easter, so to speak. So we were closed during the summertime. Correct, correct. Because, again, you know, again, you get a, a hot summer afternoon, you know, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to be outside. Mm -hmm. And these people had all gone back north to their, their summer homes in the north. Um, typically what very well-to-do uh, very well-to-do people that didn't have to worry about getting to work back, get, get back to work on Monday and punch in they had white tablecloths did they not they had white tablecloths everything was uh, you and know he, your dad used sterling silver uh, initially yes um, the I believe the early place settings were things that were just cobbled together you know with, service for 12 here and six here and four there kind of a, um, a cornucopia of silverware and plates and glasses um, in the later years and, and we never never did use stainless steel um, everything was uh, genuine plated silver plated I think they, they typically did it over brass uh, always used Syracuse China um, always always the finest you know no plastic um we were ahead of our time i guess in that we didn't throw much away as far as uh, disposable wear everything was was reusable china glass but i always silverware. thought it was just flat elegance when i went there the times that i went there I mean, it, you know, it was you compare it to today's even when you go into a high-end restaurant your silverware is still very inexpensive. Yep, and it's wrapped up in a exactly. paper napkin, mm -hmm. wrapped up. You know, we use cloth napkins, um, serve finger bowls after after yeah. the meal. That was always entertaining. Sometimes folks wouldn't realize what was being put in front of them and Drink it. state that they <laughs> did not order the after-dinner soup or <laughs> why are you serving me warm lemonade? <laughs> Tell me more about the menu. What kind of type of menu did you? Oh have? yeah, the menu. Sorry, I digress. Um, the menu morphed into as as the times changed and availability changed. Of course, keep in mind back then refrigeration was still somewhat new. We're talking the twenties and thirties. We're talking pre-war, mm -hmm. um, so uh, things had to come from other parts of the country. Um, you know, the slaughterhouses in Chicago. Um, that's that's where you got your meat. And it had to come by rail. It was typically salt packed, salt cured. Mm. Um, some of it came in ice, and so the, the but the beef was always she always sought out the the the, the best um, to to be able to to replicate. Because again, keep in mind 
where the majority of the customers came from and as far as their primary residence, they expected quality. Um, they were used to grain-fed, grass-fed uh, Midwest beef. That's what she had. Uh, seafood, again, that was very abundant at this latitude because, of course, being a peninsula with the Gulf on one side and the Atlantic on the other, fresh fish was always available. Um, so the, the menu initially was steaks and seafood. I would, what I would probably refer to as an American-type menu, uh, European-American, because, again, what the era was and what people ate. Um, sophisticated palates of um, exotic, multi-seasoned French sauces, eh, maybe some of them, but not a lot. So tell me about your your then your mother your grandmother Eleanor Boardman took over. Correct. So f- then, m- when from Mary Boardman, uh, Eleanor t- uh, took over, and that was in the third. It was thirties, forties. Yeah, late thirties, early forties, and operated it until, well, essentially her retirement, which my dad took over in the early 60s yeah early 60s Um, interesting history on my dad just briefly prior to that he had nothing to do with the restaurant business per se Um, he was a site prep manager for Ruttenberg's for Art and Charlie Ruttenberg Um, I can drive around town today and point to subdivisions that he was responsible for the infrastructure. When I, when I say site development, they would go into a tract of land and clear it and put in the infrastructure, the roads, utilities, etc., for Ruttenbergs and to sell lots and build homes. Yeah, my father was an artist and he used to do the architectural renderings for a lot of Ruttenberg homes. And there's, there are, there, like I said, I can drive around town and, you know, that... Uh, I recognize some, too. Yep, Keene uh, Park yeah. down at mm-hmm. uh, East Bay and Keene. Uh, they did that one. Uh, they did the original, it was a, the Walker property on the northwest corner of Bel Air Road and Belcher. And that lake that's on that property was actually discovered by accident that is a natural spring-fed lake. And which one is that? It's uh, the property. Uh, walkers lived there for oh, a long yeah. time. Oh, yeah, I know where you're talking there's, about. There's, it was originally the Rohara House. Okay. Oh, yeah, that, that's on, yeah, yeah, on the north mm-hmm. northwest corner right. of Bel Air and mm-hmm. Belcher Roads. Yes. Yeah. And I remember him telling me this story, and they d- were digging out from a borrow pit to fill mm-hmm. the rest of the, the swampy area. And unbeknownst to them, they just, you know, digging it with a drag line. And they had a pump in it running. And the drag line was down in the bottom of the, you know, lake there, the, the, the excavation, digging it out. And they came back Monday morning, and the drag line was underwater because apparently the pump couldn't keep up with the aquifer punch that they had inadvertently done. I mean, nobody knew all this stuff back then. You didn't yeah. do any geological yeah. research. It's like, okay, put the lake right there. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> and that, to this day, is an artesian, natural, oh, wow. spring-fed lake. Yeah, we had a lot of springs around Clearwater. Yes, yes. 
and there was actually one just to the west of the restaurant. It's still out there. It, it moves. I remember playing in that as a kid. There was a behind. I grew up on Vine, and behind and near Jones Street, and behind our house and the house next door, there was a big garden that my grandmother helped the next door neighbor with. And it was always wet. Jay Hamilton and I used to walk through there because we were we could play. We were going out to the bamboo patch that was back there. It was always wet, and there was no sprinkler system. So there's probably a, a, a spring back there somewhere. Yep, those are all over the yeah, place. Yeah, just like they were all over our water front. Yep, and there's there's still springs all along. There's a big one uh, blowing blows out in front of the Fenway. In Dunedin, which I understood is where they actually got most of their water back in the really? day. If you go out at a negative low tide, you can actually see the clear water coming up out Jay of that spring. Jay Rude's photographs Edgewater Drive frequently, and there's still fish out there. Are you seeing that now after the red tide? Well, it's funny. I, I was uh, I took a boat this morning uh, from uh, Seminole up to uh, uh, Marker One, and the water was was clean. Um, it was actually kind of pretty. But yesterday I worked at the aquarium, mm-hmm. and the uh, we saw just a few dead fish. The water wasn't discolored, but I know that the uh, organism was in the water because a boat passes, and you get a little vapor. Vapor mm-hmm. comes up as a boat goes through on a plane, and everybody on the boat started coughing. Yeah. I moved to the windward side of the channel, so everybody tripped past us downwind, mm-hmm. and we we quit coughing. There's a few few fish floating around out there, mm-hmm. but that's. Uh, we got to get back to the restaurant. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so what did your dad do after working for Ruttenberg? Well, that's when he had he had visual issues and had to come in off the road and leave the field. And that's when he went, went basically went and took over the restaurant at that point in time mm-hmm. as a full-time career. And that was the point in time at which he made the decision to eliminate the seasonality and open it year-round. Because, of course, by then, you know, we're, we're – 30, 40 years into it, mm-hmm. and a lot of growth in that length of time. Um, Island Estates was just being developed. I think it was just, just being created in the early 60s. Um, so there was a lot of growth in the area and had been open in full, uh, full-time year-round uh, ever since that point in time. The next addition was the Cove and the Harbor Room, which were to the south and west of the 1953 edition. Um, that was done in late 60s. A lot of windows in the place. Yes, all, all glass. View. Yeah, everything was... Didn't the, it have a fireplace? In yep, there were... Actually, that house originally had six fireplaces in that house because that's that was the only uh, only form of heat right. early on. It was pre, pre-electricity. Um, was it a wooden structure? Yes, all wood. And the we continued to use actively two of the fireplaces. One was in the bar, and the other was in the lobby area. Mm-hmm. I remember that the one in the lobby area, there were four fireplaces on that flue, only one of which was in use. And you got a fire going in that thing. I mean, it would draw air. It was like like a tornado going up that thing. I, because it was such a big, such a big. I was talking flu. to my next door neighbor, Charles Jacobs, and he and his wife Barbara moved down here at the bequest of Toki Walker and Robert Word to go to work for Metal Industries, and um, he was wined and dined by the Words. And when Barbara moved down with the children after he found a house for them, um, 
they were taken to dinner with Toki Walker and Robert Word and his wife. And they went to the Kapok Tree Inn for hors d'oeuvres. And then they went to Cyples Garden Seat Inn for dinner and Holloman's for dessert. <laughs> kind of hit. She'd never been wined and dined quite like that. Kind of hit the high spots. <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting um, talking about over the years, some of the people that have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, back when Dow Sherwood had the Showboat Dinner Theater, yes. he had uh, some uh, condominium. Uh, condominiums on Clearwater Point and he would house the uh, stars of the various performances at those condominiums and pretty much without fail at some point in time we would see every one of them would come over for dinner Mm -hmm. and we had a, a, a stack of autographs we kept them on the the entire front lobby was filled with autographs of personalities that had been in um, run the gamut of, of sports figures, um, actors, actresses mm-hmm. uh, of of all eras. Um, trying to think. Well, I could sit here for fifteen minutes spitting yeah. out names. I but kind of compare lots of them. Compare Cyples Garden Seat in with with what Chalet Suzanne was years ago as well. And they were formed about the same time in the nineteen twenties, yeah. early nineteen thirties. Um, tell me about the, what what do you think their most famous recipe was I would have to say without question chocolate rum pie that was you know, we, we had a, a list of at least 30 desserts on any given night or at any given meal and chocolate rum pie was the without question the most uh, most sought after I say most sought after it was it was our signature signature uh, dessert and it's a fairly complex recipe because it takes actually three different. Uh, you've got to make the the, uh, the the crust, and you've got to make the, uh, the 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 filling, and then you've got to put it together. So it's a it's a three step, pretty pretty complicated. Not not something that you, the average person would throw together in their in their home. And all the recipes that we ever had had published multiple cookbooks. They were we would gladly give anyone any recipe we had except the chocolate rum pie <laughs> and i it to us. <laughs> well i still i still have that yep i shared it with the uh, with the with the museum um but I, I guess the statute of limitations is probably passed on that now for 30 <laughs> years so we can we can divulge that yeah <laughs> so you did have cookbooks made yes yep so, yeah, do you we, have one several. of those uh, I think I gave that to the museum. I try to give all, all of my mm-hmm. my local memorabilia stuff, yearbooks, cookbooks, mm-hmm. anything like that, to the museum. I mean, I know it. I lived it. I got it on a shelf at my house. What yeah. good does that do? Yeah. I'd, I'd rather share it, share it with everybody that wants to see it. And how old were you when you started working in the museum? <sighs> when I started working at the restaurant, uh, probably when I was old enough to get dragged over there and something stuck <laughs> in my hand and saying, here, wash this. Uh, <laughs> Fold the napkins. <laughs> well, it was like, hey, the dishwasher didn't show up. Guess who our dishwasher is tonight? And I was like, well, and of course, living across the street, it's like, well, it's going to take me a while to get there. It's like, and they don't, didn't have the don't make me come get you. Either, did they? Oh, they did, but they you know, again, somebody had to, somebody had to operate it. Yeah. And uh, but you know, at, at you know, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, that was not what 
you wanted to be doing. No, it wasn't even, you know. I hear, I hear rumors of escapades with you and Tom Fox. No, they're all, they're, none of them true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom had worked there. I, I go, uh, the Dunedin mayor, Bob Hackworth, yeah. he worked there. Um, the late Jerry Smith of uh, K.K. Smith & Son Jewelers, he worked there. I could go back with high school uh, classmates, um, both that, that graduated prior to, to me and after that worked there. Um, it, it was funny. I remember uh, Charlie McMullen of uh, McMullen's Feed, before they closed, we were laughing and said that there were, there were two, two competing forces there, there was there are two, how did he put it? Two armies. He said there was the uh, Dick Siples uh, uh, boot camp mm-hmm. or Lester McMullen's boot camp. <laughs> they would they would work in the in, in the field in uh, in, in ag- somehow in agriculture and uh, um, ornamental shrubbery at McMullen's feed, or they would work at the garden seat. Well, Janet and, McMullen is. I think her dad owned McMullen's um, feed store, and. Janet Randall, rather, and she was telling me. In fact, she sent us pictures of all the chickens that they, her dad raised, and they had a chicken farm out near Ruth Eckert Hall, off McMullen Booth Road. Where did your dad get all these chickens? Um, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't in purchasing at the time. Remember, <laughs> I was in, uh, shall we say, uh, dish maintenance. So. <laughs> um, but we did strive to purchase locally, mm-hmm. uh, wherever we could. I remember distinctly all of our fresh orange juice and citrus came from Almer Brothers, uh, as in Almer, as in Almerton yeah. Road. Um, they had a huge, huge grove and operation there. Um, I know the, um, of course, most of the seafood came. We came came from local, and then as as that became more restricted. Um, Again, a, a larger local vendor. Um, all of our shrimp we bought from a company. I don't think they're still there anymore. American Freezer. Um, that was all Gulf, Gulf Pink shrimp is all we would buy back when you could get enough to, to count. Um, and that was all harvested in the Gulf of Mexico and came in to one of the one of the uh, ports here in Pinellas County and were processed um, processed locally. Did you serve mullet that Clearwater was so famous for? Um, Sometimes, but you got to remember back then, mullet was viewed as junk. Yeah. Um, it was like chicken wings. Now they're a delicacy. Right. But chicken wings, you know, chicken necks, that kind of stuff is like, nah, no, nobody's going to pay for that stuff. This is the stuff they, they throw out the back door at the, at the fish market or at the, uh, at the butcher shop. You know, a cut of meat that, you know, now is eight bucks a pound, but at the time, you couldn't give it away. So. How, how tastes have changed oh, yes. and availability. So, and and I think back on some of the staff that uh, that we've had over the years, and what some of them have come come along to do. Um, there was, uh, in fact, uh, he's in, he's featured in Daryl May's book. Um, he's he's a pianist. Okay. A gentleman by the name of Clay Hart played the piano Mm -hmm. and I was surprised I name I had forgotten it was from a long time ago I was a kid and he is featured in Daryl May's book I guess Daryl had known him quite a bit in his entertainment days and 
I guess his, his, shall we say, his musical career was launched in Clearwater, Florida, playing the piano yeah. three nights a week from seven to ten at the garden seat. <laughs> uh, who knew? Um, the uh, through through I would say, you know, what do you call it? A, a pre-career working mm-hmm. years. A um, couple of the guys went on. They were uh, with the uh, became deputy sheriffs. Um, we had. Uh, and this was an era of, of career servers. Uh, we had some of the part-time folks who worked in the second, second income, all very dedicated to what they did. And the career servers were professionals. Um, they supported a family doing what they did. Um, they, were, they were knowledgeable, they were professional, reliable, um, really uh, great to be around. And to this day, I still keep in touch with some of them some 30 years later. Um, we also, of course, not really nobody knew it, but we employed, uh, I would guess you might call them uh, second, second chancers, uh, someone with a known criminal background that was having a difficult time getting employment. And we had a, a, an assistant uh, uh, group and a process to, I mean, obviously, you know, no, no creepy stuff, but back, back then in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, you know, most of it was drug-related offenses. Mm-hmm. And we would give these guys a second chance. Um, some stayed there uh, after their, after their uh, shall we say, stint with the state. Yeah. Uh, most of them, in fact, most of them did because they had a, a good career, they had a good job. They made friends and realized that they could contribute and actually make a living the right mm-hmm. way instead of doing dumb stuff. Um, had, had uh, oh, I would say probably six or eight, six or eight folks like that, that uh, they very, very good employees. So yeah. I like to give, give somebody a chance. Right, they realize that. Yep, yep. They owe you. Well, they didn't know us, but you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'll in, if you invest in yourself, I'll invest in you. Mm-hmm. Let's you know, let's see what we get here for an ROI. And it usually worked. Yeah. Every now and then we call it wrong, but you know. So fast forward to 1990, when we had performed many, many weddings, sometimes even second time around for uh, for a couple, anniversaries, proms, birthdays. Um, even my wife remembers having gone there as a young girl with uh, with her mom and dad. Um, all the yearbooks had pictures. We sponsored the uh, Clearwater High School yearbooks, and there were photographs in there, and prom nights were huge. Fast forward to 1990, as times change, elegant dining was kind of falling out of favor. Uh, it was just easier to throw on a pair of flip-flops, stick your hair under a ball cap, put on a tank top, and, uh, you know, Go someplace. You used to be dressed when you go out to dinner. Yes. You're going out. You're yes. a long dress. For a long time, we requested oh, yeah. jackets. That mm-hmm. went away. Now we uh, going that, in, and there were furs. Hey. Yeah, yeah. That you know that became that became a, a difficult. It just times changed, mm-hmm. and just like they have between 1990 and now, times change, tastes change, um, staffing was becoming difficult. Um, I think it was difficult then. Look at it now. Uh, it just—it was a different world, and my folks were getting on up in years, and you know, I—I I was looking forward to a legacy, but there are other things I could do still. At you know, at that point in time, I wasn't quite 40 years old, 
So we made the decision to close the business and the hospital, as soon as they got wind of that, uh, offered to uh, purchase a property. Um, part of that was done in donation and part of it in cash, um, which is great to be a part of a community mm -hmm. facility like that. And it really kind of wrapped up with a bow, the legacy that my great-grandmother had started in selling them the very first piece of land, which is why the hospital is where it is today. So they kind of wrapped that up in a nice, neat little package. Uh, my dad retired and spent his years volunteering at the hospital to the tune of almost 40 hours a week wow. over there. In fact, was recognized for his, uh, his volunteer efforts. Um, I went on to do other things. A childhood friend of mine got me uh, started into what became my second career that I retired from. And then I circled back completely to what I always loved to do as a kid, which is be on the water. And so I now I'm third issue uh, marine uh, merchant mariner. I work at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium, and I deliver new boats for Tom George Yacht Group. Oh, so nice. I still get to be on the water. And I uh, still get to be with a bunch of people and talk to people. And, but every day goes by, and 1990 was longer ago, and fewer and fewer people remember the restaurant. But uh, that's what we're all about here at the Clearwater Historical oh. Society is memories. Yes, and everybody who's lived here in Clearwater has a memory of Cypress Garden Seed Inn in the early years. It's fun to, fun to be a part of it, great place to grow up. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Clearwater History Speaks podcast.